From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool. Come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Can you hear that? That is the sound of a parent raiding his child's Halloween uh, treasure trove. <laughs> Smarties, my favorite. And thankfully, uh, the little guys, they don't they don't like Smarties. Right? Is that right, Zachary? You don't like the Smarties, do you? No. Disgusting. Well, disgusting, he says. Well, your loss is my gain. <laughs> Uh, John Rappaport of No More Fake News is here and will climb aboard uh, in mere moments. Uh, so much to discuss with John. Uh, we'll likely get into the um, the opioid epidemic, uh, that horrible. My word! They just it's every week it seems there's another one. The uh, the, the the most recent um, uh, massacre, the, uh, the the shooting in that church in Texas. Uh, there's the flu vaccine, a new study out from the University of Pennsylvania. John will weigh in on that. Other geopolitical events. Um, and, uh, oh, of course, Hollywood. The, um, sex scandals flying all over the place. The depravity of Hollywood revealing itself. Um, it, it's just piling up hour after hour. Uh, that conversation with John next. The crop circle gal, Patty Greer, will be here in the second hour. Now, Patty says... She has made her last crop circle film. She's made about eight of them, I think, in the last ten years. Very prolific. But but now she's ready. It's time to take it to the next level. Uh, she's learned a lot over the years about crop circles, and now it's time. You know, what can we do with this information? She'll be here to tell us about that. Let me introduce the boys in the band, as always, and then I've got a couple of announcements. Our fine rockabilly friend on the Gibson Flying V guitar, a technical producer, Ian Robertson. Uh, who will be heading off to Los Angeles, La La Land, uh, to record an album? Is it a full? Is it a full length, um, like an LP that the kids used to say? The, yes. Are they going to be like seventeen tracks? Seventeen tracks, and it'll be on vinyl. Yeah, hopefully. All right, none of this wild di- records, digital MP3 nonsense. It's a, it's vinyl. Yeah. Great, good for Great you. Great wax. Wax, exactly. Congratulations. Uh, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, left-handed bass, right? Albert, it'd be a left-handed bass. You are left-handed, aren't you? Uh, uh, he's also uh, he also dabbles on the uh, theremin, the mysterious, idiosyncratic Albert Vinzel, my story producer, and on the Hammond B3 feature producer, the Quiet Beetle, Ryan White. All right, first order of business. We have a new affiliate. It's been a while. It's been a while, but tonight we are happy to announce the addition of WRTLAM. 1620 in Carbondale, Illinois. Do you know where Carbondale is, uh, Albert? It's in the southern part of the state, way down there in southern Illinois. And it's also the home, it's a university town, the home of the University of Southern Illinois. And you know what the Carbondale's motto is, Ryan? It's the city of trees and PhDs. You see, because they got the university and it's a lot of lush greenery. So, thank you so much to everyone at WRTLAM uh, for making the Conspiracy Show part of your radio schedule. Incidentally, if you're down in that uh, neck of the woods in, um, I think it's Jackson County, Southern Illinois, uh, the Conspiracy Show airs Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. All right, now here's the other piece of news. 
I get, not a week goes by, I don't get mail, email, snail mail, tweets, people asking me, you know, why are you only on once a week? Uh, why are you just doing two hours? Lord knows there's enough going on out there to fill seven nights a week. I could do a four-hour show, but uh, it is what it is. This is a weekly show. I'm so fortunate to have a slot here on this blowtorch of a station, AM740 Zoomer Radio. Uh, and I'm not giving that up. This this will continue as a terrestrial radio show. And, of course, this program is also available as a podcast. Uh, but what I've decided is because there's so much to talk about, I'm going to be offering an exclusive podcast. Same content. It's going to be three nights a week, th- three one-hour podcasts coming at you every week. And, again, same type of content. Uh, and it'll be launching, we hope, during the first week of December. And you can listen, again, you can listen to this radio program, Sunday nights, still available as a podcast, and then three additional one-hour podcasts only every week. And I will give you uh, more details on how to listen, where to subscribe very, very soon, but watch for it. I'm very excited about this podcast. Uh, And I have another podcast uh, project ready to launch as well. And I've uh, I've talked about this a, a number of uh, times on the air. It's a project I was working on with the late R. Gary Patterson, and uh, we are very close to launching. Uh, I'm working very closely with a with a a big name, someone you will recognize, and uh, in the world of podcasting, he's not co-hosting, but he's uh, he's sort of the, the partner in this, and I will reveal that as well very soon as we get ready to launch. The program is to be called the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. And uh, it's getting close, again, as I say, to a launch. And it's, that'll be a once-a-week podcast. So two podcasts coming at you very soon. I'll be making an official announcement. All right. John Rappaport has worked as an investigative reporter for well over 20 years. He's the author of five books, including AIDS, Inc., Scandal of the Century, The Ownership of All Life, The Secret Behind Secret Societies. He's written on medical fraud, deep politics, health issues for newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe, including CBS Health Watch, Spin, Stern, L.A. Weekly. In fact, the L.A. Weekly placed John's name in nomination for a Pulitzer Prize for his interview with the president of Salvador University, where a military takeover had occurred. He's the founder of the fabulous website nomorefakenews.com. It's an excellent source of alternative information. He's published artic- he publishes articles there very frequently. He remains a tireless investigator and a prolific writer. And, of course, you'll also want to check out uh, his amazing Matrix series. It's a series of uh, three CD-ROM sets, The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix, and Power Outside the Matrix. John Rappaport, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Very good, Richard. Good to be here, as always. Yes. How are, your new, how are things in your new digs? You've moved time zones. Yes, East Coast now. Uh, well, we have seasons again, which is a big shocker after some 35 or more years on the West Coast. But uh, I was originally brought up outside New York, so getting reacquainted with all of that is pretty good. Excellent, excellent. Now, I, I want you to, uh, you wear many hats, but I want to put you, I want you to put on your award-winning investigative health reporter hat and tell me about this recent study from the University of Pennsylvania on the flu vaccine, which, not surprisingly, has kind of flown under the radar. Really, because it's titled A Structural Explanation for the Low Effectiveness of the Seasonal Influenza 
H3N2 vaccine. So that gives people a clue right there why it's not being publicized more. And uh, basically, the authors are offering an explanation for why the low effectiveness of the seasonal flu vaccine. And they talk about how the vaccine, uh, the virus is cultured in chicken eggs, and therefore it mutates. So, since it mutates, even if you believe in the mainstream theory of vaccination, uh, you're often getting a vaccine which is not uh, matched up with the flu virus of that year or possibly any year. So the, the virus in the vaccine itself mutates, and then you have the, the virus that's out there, uh, the common flu, which is mutating all the time. So the, the, the odds of those two sort of coinciding uh, are, I mean, what, what is the effectiveness? Do we have a percentage? <laughs> I don't have a percentage, but uh, it's a crapshoot, let's put it that way. <laughs> and that's not the way it's promoted, of course, to the public. Well, we've got another crapshoot vaccine this year, and we we think it might uh, possibly work. So if you're so adventurous as to try it, good luck. You know, it's sort of like walking into a casino where they say, good luck when they give you your chips. Right, right. But but as you point out in your uh, your recent article on this, oh, and we should point out University of Pennsylvania and also the Scripps Institute, they sort of co-authored this, correct? Yes. And this was yeah, it's a mainstream study. It's not something on the fringe, but it's not getting, you know, the evidence. Uh, it's, it's it's not being trumpeted by the press the way it ought to be. It ought to be the source of a, a now deep probe and investigation by the press, but of course that's not going to happen. But the folks at Scripps and, and the University of Pennsylvania who authored this, they're not, they're not saying we have to do, with the, do away with the flu vaccine. They're merely saying we need to replace the egg-based production of the vaccine, correct? Yes, <clears throat> that's right. That's what they're saying. But I have other information in the article which I've written about before that's even worse. This came from the online British medical journal, BMJ, uh, several years ago. And the basic uh, point there is that every year, hundreds of thousands of respiratory samples are taken from flu patients in the U.S. and tested in labs. Only a very small percentage of these samples show the presence of any flu virus. That would be something on the order of perhaps 16% a year. The rest show no sign of a flu virus. 84% of... The overwhelming majority of people that are diagnosed with the flu uh, in the U.S. don't have the flu. 84%, according to the math. exactly. So even, again, if you believe in straight-down-the-line vaccine theory, uh, you know, 84% of the people who are being vaccinated, the vaccine couldn't possibly work because they don't have the flu in the first place. Right. Well, That's another bombshell. I'll say. 
And, and is that consistent? Was that just a one-year sort of look, or does this is this consistently what happens? I mean, do they monitor this every year to find out how many people actually have the flu? Well, the quote, uh, the author is uh, Peter Doshi, Ph.D. Every year, hundreds of thousands of respiratory every specimens year. are tested. On average, 16% are found to be influenza positive. Wow. And again, that was published in the British Medical Journal. Mm-hmm. How could we expect the flu vaccine, even if you believe in the efficacy of the flu vaccine, to work on people, 84% of whom do not have the flu? My word. All right. We will come back. John Rappaport, much to, 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 uh, to discuss, including Monsanto. You knew that name was going to come up during this conversation. Some more blockbuster information. Again, flying under the radar of the MSM. That's why you come here. That's why you go to No More Fake News. That's why John Rappaport is on the program. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. One of the giants toiling in this arena. Alternative news, alternative information, and that is John Rappaport, nomorefakenews.com. Before we get to your letter to uh, President Trump, uh, let's let people know how they can get a hold of your fabulous Matrix series, John. Well, they can just go to the website, nomorefakenews.com. There are several uh, graphics there. They can click on them and read all about the three collections and what's in them, and they can also sign up for the free email list and get daily articles in their email box. Excellent. All right, so earlier this week you wrote uh, uh, a missive to uh, President Trump uh, asking him to defend America's heartland. What's happening in America's heartland, John? Well, what's happening is pretty horrendous. Monsanto, when they rolled out their genetically engineered seeds, food seeds, back in the 1990s, claimed that the the seeds were resistant to the herbicide Roundup, which they manufactured, but the Roundup would kill all the weeds, so the farmers didn't have to get out there and pull up all the weeds. So this was, you know fabulous miracle and so on and so forth but it's turned out there's huge high resistant weeds growing like crazy throughout the US where farmers are using uh, these seeds and Roundup so Monsanto has upped the ante with a more powerful herbicide called Dicamba Uh, very very toxic and so now it's the EPA is reporting, for example, in Arkansas, about 900,000 acres of crops are reportedly damaged there more than any other state because this uh, herbicide, Dicamba, drifts into all kinds of farms and starts destroying things there. So in other words, if you're a neighboring farm and you're not using Monsanto products or seeds, uh, your crops are not Roundup resistant and so or dicamba resistant. And so when this dicamba, which is very liberally uh, sprayed, uh, drifts into, you, into, your, into the neighboring farms, it destroys crops. 
900,000 acres in Arkansas alone. Yeah, the EPA is reporting farmers in 25 states have submitted more than 2,700 claims to state agricultural agencies that neighbors' dicamba spraying has shriveled 3.6 million acres of soybeans, also blamed for damaging other crops like cantaloupe and pumpkins. So that's millions of acres of U.S. farmland damaged and destroyed, and you're not reading about that on page one with big headlines in the mainstream press. So uh, do I smell a class action lawsuit? I would certainly hope so. Uh, In the articles that I've read so far, I don't see evidence of it, but I wouldn't be counting on the EPA to... Uh, undertake a uh, deep, forceful investigation here. I mean, this is not news to them. These farmers in 25 states obviously have been reporting this and staking claims for some time now. I know you. So that was the purpose of writing a letter to Trump, right? To say, well, during the campaign, you were telling everybody who wanted to listen that you were going to guarantee that the environment was going to be clean, pure air, beautiful air, water, land. And what about it? What about Monsanto? What are you doing? Do you know about this? Are you keeping up? Are they letting you know about this? Well, I know you, you like a lot of people, held out great promise uh, when, when Trump was elected. Uh, however, you have also, you're not one of these uh, President Trump right or wrong. If he does something that you like, you praise him. And if he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, you go after him, which is, I think, you know, fair and balanced. And on this well, case... Well, what I said, and I've repeated this in a number of articles, my two uh, points of... Uh, admiration for Trump were, one, he kept Hillary Clinton from occupying the White House, and two, he attacked mainstream media relentlessly, which no president, in my memory, which goes back a long way, let's say, to Harry Truman, has ever done. And uh, the reason that I titled my website No More Fake News back in 2001 was I had already been working as a reporter since 1982, and it was obvious to me that mainstream news was one of the major problems in the country, Uh, and they were keeping real news from the public and lying about other news and distorting yet more news. So any time a president would come along and start attacking mainstream news, I would obviously favor that. Beyond that, however, I I said all bets are off. We'll have to see. So I was not encouraged by his appointments at the EPA or his attitude basically about big business being the business of America, and I, I've been pretty forthright about that. And you're worried that the uh, the Goldman Sachs aides that he surrounded himself with uh are not going are not going to allow him to do anything about Monsanto. Yes, because 
their business is, as I put it in my article, floating all corporate boats, period, no matter what the cost and destruction, because that's what Wall Street does. And uh, my thesis here as to why he surrounded himself with Goldman Sachs people is that they could say to him, look, we can keep the stock market up for you. You've got to have a strong stock market because you're a business president. If the market crashes, then all bets are off for you because that's what you're offering America. And we can do that, but we want what we want. And I believe that he entered into a conscious deal on that basis. Well, as you point out, Bill Clinton was a Monsanto man, Obama was a Mon <clears throat> Monsanto man, and so now it's time to find out whether Trump is a Monsanto man. However, you know, those flyover states, really the key to, to Trump's success, uh, Iowa, um, Arkansas, I suppose you could throw in there as well, those farmers... Uh, um, I mean, he's, he's, he's dependent on those, even for the midterms. That's so why I wrote the piece as a letter to Trump, because these are the people that he courted. These are the people that he promised he would do something for that hadn't been done before. And it's the heartland. Okay, put up or shut up. What's the status of Monsanto in, in, in Europe? Uh, are those, they're kind of on the run over there, aren't they? Yeah, they, uh, there's a much more cynical attitude, I would say, widespread in Europe. It's a fight. It's a struggle. It's a battle. Because ultimately, the European Union, as far as I'm concerned, is, because it is a globalist institution, is on the side of all mega corporations and no matter what they say or even what they do right now they want to steer things in the direction of having more genetically engineered food over there but the public is generally much more educated than the public here so it's a tougher fight for them so Monsanto is, is looked upon, I would say, many more, the, a much higher percentage of the population over there is aware of the crimes of Monsanto than in the, the United States. John Rappaport is with us. The website, nomorefakenews.com. Uh, we haven't had a chance to, to talk um, since this horrific uh, Texas church shooting massacre, uh, really. Uh, you've uncovered some pretty... Interesting details regarding Devin Kelly, the, the shooter. Uh, let's talk about that for a bit. Sure. You know, I've been tracking, as other people have for a while, the sentences that are handed out to criminals who commit vicious crimes. The low-ball sentences that are just staggering. So this guy, Kelly... Several years ago, while he was in the armed forces, was arrested and uh, brought to a military court because he had beaten up and kicked his wife and choked her several times at least and had pointed a loaded gun at her. And he had also 
struck his infant stepson with sufficient force to fracture his skull. Oh, dear. And the Air Force prosecutors said that, A, Kelly admitted that he did it intentionally, and, B, that the force was enough to kill his infant stepson. So, round about 2013, he was found guilty and convicted and sentenced to one year of confinement. One year, and he was demoted in rank. So these most serious charges were basically withdrawn as part of a plea deal. Well, the charge that was withdrawn during the plea bargain was that he had pointed a loaded gun at his wife. That's it, as far as I know. So, by all rights, the man should have been in prison for a very long time, in which case he never would have shown up at the Texas church with a weapon and shot people and killed them. Because, and you also add, uh, that they forgot, the Air Force, that is, he served at Holloman Air Force Base, what did they forget to enter this this charge into and conviction into the national database, which would have prevented him from acquiring firearms. Yeah, from legally acquiring right, firearms. Right, right. But the point is, the mainstream media focused on that point, that point alone. But to me, the larger point, because he could have, you know, people get guns legally, illegally all the time. That, to me, is a far lesser point than he never should have been free and out and walking around to commit this heinous crime. No, I mean, if you if you intentionally strike a child with enough force to, to, to fatally injure that child, that's attempted murder. That's, right. as you so say, he should have been... 20 years, 50 years, exactly. whatever the charge would be. One year in confinement, demotion in rank... You know, this boggles the mind. This is sheer insanity. And most people, when they come across situations like this, they just tune out because it doesn't... The the degree of cognitive distance is so great that they can't even comprehend what's happening here. So they think to themselves, well, you know, there must have been some other reason why he was given such a light charge. No. No, there was no other reason except that the law has been twisted and distorted to allow serious criminals to get off with incredibly light sentences. And there are other cases, many other cases of this. In fact, in the Rand Paul attack, yes, recently we may see something like this occur as well. That's a whole other deal, but well, we, maybe so, we'll, we will get into the Rand Paul attack. But I, I, I want to just—I want to ask you another thing about Devin Kelly. And, and again, this was um, happened while he was at Holloman Air Force Base. Was this a military court hearing, or was he tried by jury? How did this happen? Oh, it was a military court. And my understanding of military courts is that they have juries. I don't know whether there are any bench trials where the judge makes the unilateral decision. Um, but, you know, you can have a, a military jury, and however they came to this conclusion and however the prosecutors managed to drop the ball, 
to put it mildly, is to me inconceivable. Well, and you you uh, end this uh, article on NoMoreFakeNews.com talking about De- Devin Kelly, and you say, I wonder how well Devin Kelly's jury members from 2012 are sleeping at night. They had it within their the capability of sending him away for a very long time back in 2012. And uh, after a year, he's back on the street, and now it's all this. All right, John, stay uh, stay where you are. We will come back. Uh, we'll get around to uh, the Rand Paul attack and um, many other things right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the next hour, the Crop Circle gal, Patty Greer, will be here. Producer of eight films on the Crop Circle phenomenon. Uh, but uh, she she vows she's not going to make any more films about Crop Circles. She's, it's time, she says, to take it to the next level. What do we do with this information? How do we use this for, for humankind? Um, I do want to get around to, uh, to Rand Paul, which was kind of a, a head-scratcher. Uh, the uh, Kentucky senator who was attacked viciously by his neighbor. I think he ended up breaking six ribs. But I, we'll circle back to that. I want to get back to uh, the vaccine um, uh, story. And um, this is something else that you wrote about recently, uh, this month, in fact, about new vaccines and how they will permanently alter our DNA. Uh, let's talk about that for a bit, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is also another story that's flown under the radar been covered here and there in mainstream press, but certainly not enough. The main reference uh, in my piece was a New York Times article uh, from 2015 about the next generation of vaccines. The idea is, and we're now in clinical trials, human clinical trials of testing, the idea is that synthesized genes would be injected into people receiving vaccines and these genes would supposedly provoke the same kind of immune response that it is said that traditional vaccines do and therefore it's a quote you know cleaner more effective way of delivering vaccines But the kicker in the article in the Times was this would alter the person's DNA. So in other words, this is not just a temporary little visit from synthesized genes. These genes are permanently installed. And the Times went to a Nobel laureate, Dr. David Baltimore, and asked him for a comment. He said, yes, well, mm mm-hmm. But he said, I could see how people might be leery of having their DNA altered. Well, this is another one of these gigantic blockbuster stories that just kind of flits by in the mainstream and then it's put away to bed. But imagine if the next generation of vaccines indeed turns out to be these DNA vaccines, you're now talking about permanently altering the DNA of every human on Earth who receives any one of these vaccines. And if they receive, let's say, 10 or 15 of these, each time we're talking about an alteration in DNA. And you'll pass that change 
to your children, to your ne- to the next generation. It would certainly appear so. I mean, that's what happens when you have generations. Does this mean, John, that the idea here is, even if then if you don't have a vaccine for something, let's say parents have the vaccine, one of these DNA-changing vaccines, they have children, but they decide not to vaccinate their children, it doesn't matter anymore because their children's DNA has been altered so that the cells in their body produce these antibodies? That's a very good question, and none of the articles that I've read, none of the reports answer that question. But it very likely could be the assumption of the medical, quote, experts that you would be producing, quote, permanent immunity down through the generations. I question that very seriously. You know, one of the factors is, in studying any vaccine, does it really produce the effect that researchers claim it produces? And we just finished talking about the flu vaccine, and obviously there's some incredibly serious problems with that. So I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that this is going to be a giant victory for permanent immunity from dozens of diseases. I would say the real point is to look at the permanent alteration of DNA. That is not something that you toy around with superficially and say, oh, well, it's just, you know, a minor factor here. Particularly if these vaccines are mandatory, and this is the push now. Uh, We're seeing it in places like, well, we're seeing it in jurisdictions in the United States, certainly, and here in Canada. Uh, and in Europe, but if these are DNA-altering vaccines that are mandatory, I mean, we don't know which genes these are going to affect necessarily. Maybe they'll affect all genes. And what is what is the, as you point out in your article, are these vaccines then going to be used as a cover to modify all of our genes, all of our DNA? Exactly, because you just stretch this out and somebody comes along and says, well, I have an even better idea. Why don't we use this technology to alter the genetic makeup of humans in a, quote, positive direction? And Hmm. we'll call that a vaccine, or we'll call it whatever we want to call it. To re-engineer humans, re-engineer humans. And the other thing you pointed out that's a key factor is, and this is mainstream science, The old idea that one gene was responsible for one disease has pretty well been thrown out in favor of the idea that you're talking about combination effects of genes acting together. So what happens when you install these synthesized genes in a person's DNA? What happens to the relationship with other genes that are already there? What combinatory effects have you now created unintentionally that you can't take back. Precisely. Very, very disturbing, to say the least. John Rappaport stays with us. Nomorefakenews.com. Order his Matrix series. Back with more in a moment. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back, and John Rappaport, investigative reporter, And the creator, founder of NoMoreFakeNews.com stays with us until the top of the hour. And then in the second hour, the the crop circle gal, 
Uh, Patty Greer will be with us. Uh, what's the latest on this uh, horrific attack against Kentucky Senator Rand Paul? This was his neighbor, um, tackled him from behind and just beat him. Pretty serious injuries, like six, was it six broken ribs? Uh, yes, and fluid in his lungs. I think there was even a report that there were lesions. Not sure about that, but it was very, very serious and came out of nowhere. As far as we know from press reports, Senator was out mowing his lawn, and his neighbor, for whatever reason, came up running behind him. Uh, the senator never noticed it, and suddenly he was slammed from behind and suffered these injuries. So this was another case where I thought, okay, let's look now at what the charge is here to the assailant who, by the way, is uh, a doctor. So the charge is fourth-degree assault in Kentucky. That's a misdemeanor. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a misdemeanor. So it's defined as intentionally causing a physical injury to another, wantonly causing physical injury, or recklessly causing injury to another with a dangerous instrument. Now, it's the least serious of assault charges in the state of Kentucky and looking at the ceiling on the fine that can be assessed not more than $500 jail time cannot exceed one year unbelievable unbelievable well I know that the justice is it's supposed to be uh, you know equal for everybody but this is a standing US senator Yes, and, and in my piece, I didn't even mention that. I mean, I didn't want to get into, okay, the unequal of application of justice. So it could be anybody. It could be you. Right. You know, if you want to, in fact, I recommended in the article, if you think that a year max in jail, which is usually bargained down, and no more than $500 is a suitable punishment for this result, in terms of destruction, in a sneak attack, criminal trespass onto one's own property and this kind of attack from behind, then just get a friend of yours and say, look, I want you at some point in the next week when I least expect it to come charging up from behind me, get somebody who's pretty big and just slam into me with all the force you possibly can. And when you wake up in the hospital with six broken ribs, and fluid in your lungs, then just think about whether you think $500 and less than a year in jail is consonant with that particular crime. Right, right. So what is going on here? Is We don't know. Um, apparently it was a landscaping dispute. I don't know what that means exactly. Is it, uh, is it possible this was politically motivated? What are you it's hearing? It's possible, sure. Uh, neighbors that have been interviewed are saying... They don't see this as a landscaping dispute at all. They're not aware of any dispute. No charges uh, or complaints in the Homeowners Association files have either been entered against Rand Paul or from Rand Paul. So they have no uh, confidence that this is some sort of landscaping dispute. That means it could be politically motivated, that uh, this particular uh, assailant believes that uh, senators' politics are horrendous. Uh, I don't know. 
whatever the reason is, uh, what we're seeing here, and this is not just in America, of course, is the lowering of criminal punishments for extremely serious crimes, mainly because there are so many people committing crimes that the adjudication is, well, we just have to keep the sentences lighter and lighter and lighter, otherwise we're going to have people in jail longer and longer and longer. That does not solve the problem. That just exacerbates the problem. And it also degrades, demeans the individual, because I guess we are, be, we are becoming so inundated with mass shootings and mass killings, uh, so that now we, we consider an attack on an individual, one person, or his property as insignificant, menial, exactly. not menial, exactly. um, just, it's not serious. And that's... But that's really where justice has to begin. Yes. It doesn't begin with mass crimes, it begins with what is the individual? What rights does the individual have? What is private property? What rights accrue to private property? And these issues have been muddied over so horrendously by the education system and by propaganda that people feel, well, it's not really important. Who cares? You know, it doesn't matter what the individual thinks or what happens to him. Private property, what is that all about? It's probably not something we even really want. And these are people that, you know, their minds are basically like oatmeal mush. They can't think. They've been miseducated. They have no idea about the founding ideas of the American Republic or why those ideas are important. And so this is where all the trouble begins. It's almost like the the individual doesn't matter. Crimes against the state are paramount. But crimes against the individual and his property don't mean anything, uh, which reminds me of a recent uh, poll. I don't know if it was Pew Research. You probably saw this. Was it four in ten millennials in the United States now say they would rather live in a socialist country? Did you see that? Was it four in ten? Socialist or communist. Yes. Four in ten. I suggest that they try China. Or Venezuela. How's that working out? Or Venezuela, that would be a good one. And, you know, just live there, not just for a couple of weeks or months, but, you know, five years. Give it a good shot and see what happens. And act as you are acting now in America in those places. Say what you would say, do what you would do, and see what happens to you. Mm. Five and years, come, most of which will back be... back if you can and let us know how you... How you feel. Exactly. Five years. That's a good time. Most of that will be spent in line for toilet paper and bread. Certainly it's in Venezuela. Prison, yes. Speaking, uh, you know, out of school. Uh, just a few moments yet, but I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to get your take on the, um, the uh, opioid epidemic, uh, what you believe is behind it, as you point out in your article again earlier this month. My word, you're prolific. You're just churning these out uh, almost daily, but, um, I mean, the, the statistics. We know they're stark. 106,000 Americans a year are being killed by uh, uh, drugs. This is not; these are not illicit drugs. These are pharmaceuticals. These are over-the-counter drugs. About a million people per decade. What's going on with this opioid epidemic, John? Well, there are a couple of different pipelines, but 
the pharmaceutical manufacturers of the opioid pills, like fentanyl, like Oxycontin, Percocet, Percodan, etc., uh, Vicodin, the ones who are actually traffickers, talking about real drug traffickers, know that they're shipping gigantic amounts of these pills to pharmacies and small clinics where there's no possible way that uh, we're talking about legal distribution. They know that from those little tiny pharmacies, all kinds of dealers basically are buying these pills. And the DEA is almost straightjacketed against stopping these uh, shipments now because of a new law that was passed last year. So it really goes all the way to the top of the pharmaceutical cartel. And then there are underground labs in China that are manufacturing spin-offs, designer spin-offs, that are incredibly dangerous. Uh, so my, in only a, a minute or two, I can only say to people, watch out, because there are, there's an elephant tranquilizer called carfentanyl, there are Chinese lab spin-offs that can cause instant death in very tiny doses. Not addiction, just you drop dead. And so-called first responders, in other words, when they interdict a shipment, the first responders from law enforcement are being highly warned if they inhale the fumes of these powders or if they get any powder, even a tiny amount, into a cut, they could die instantly. So this is how serious it's getting. It's chemical warfare, basically. For depopulation, it sounds like. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is a cull, a major human cull. Exactly. It's, it's, I mean, I had a reader in Ohio, for example, after I wrote my first article, uh, on opioid epidemic write me and said I can see this everywhere when I walk around in my city people look like zombies this you, is not just something that uh, you know is happening elsewhere it's visible you mentioned Purdue Pharma uh, and they've made billions and tens of billions of dollars in profits from Oxycontin uh, and they were, I mean, what, they were basically given a slap on the wrist for lying. Uh, they were lying to doctors about the dangers of, of these opioids. And what was the yeah, punishment? They were promoting the use beyond any rational uh, boundary. Oh, you people can take it long term. It's not a problem. And, you know, by the way, it's good for a number of different pain conditions, not just, uh, you know, what the FDA has approved it for. So they basically were drug promote trafficking promoters and of the 35 billion in revenue that they took in from oxycontin again here we're talking about the court system what was the outcome 600 million dollar fine and three executives were sentenced to a number of hours of community service there you go that's it meanwhile the uh, the bodies are piling up like cordwood Indeed, they are. And no end in sight. It's happening uh, in Canada, in Australia, in England. It's happening all over the world, as far as I know. I mean, I have reports from those countries, and I know it's happening elsewhere. It's just an exploding 
amount of destruction from these drugs. Well, John, on that bleak note, we look forward to your uh, continuing blogs. Again, let me direct people to nomorefakenews.com. Nomorefakenews.com. It really should be bookmarked on everyone's computer. And uh, again, please check out the Matrix series. You can uh, order those right from the website, nomorefakenews.com. John, be well, and I look forward to our next conversation. Me too, Richard. Always great to be with you. Thanks. Likewise. John Rappaport. Patty Greer up next. Crop circles. Where do we go from here? She'll tell us.